are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight we're not looking at Titus. We're turning our attention to the book of Genesis. And we'll be reading together Genesis chapter 14. So if you would turn there with me in your Bibles. Genesis 14, you're going to find this on page 10 of the Pew Bible. We'll read the entire chapter together. Hear the word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Edma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shavakiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkel and Mamre take their share. Well, if you had been looking at Genesis prior to this, you'd find that following the catastrophic fall of man, God made a gospel promise. In the curse of the devil, he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that, of course, was a pledge from God Most High to create new hearts in his people and destroy the alliance that they had with Satan. God would send a redeemer from the woman's own seed to conquer the forces of evil. Adam and Eve, they believed the Lord who clothed them in anticipation of Christ. In Revelation 7, John saw a great multitude that no one would number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So God's promise, mentioned in Genesis 3.15, continued to thread its way through the redemptive history. The pledge of a new heart and the great work of the Redeemer was reaffirmed over and over again. Through the person and the posterity of Shem, the promise was refined. Then in Abram's call, it was further clarified as being fulfilled in his seed. He would be the father of a vast posterity, as numerous as the grains of sand, and that he would be a means of blessing to all. In Egypt, God protected the chosen couple from defilement. You'll remember how Abimelech took Sarah into his own tent. He preserved the covenant from derailment. He brought back them safely to Canaan. And that brings us to the passage before us where God's power and Abram's blessing are again highlighted. We have an account here in Genesis 14 of the first war ever recorded in the pages of Scripture. It was not too different from other wars that have been waged, motivated by proud ambition, selfish greed, the desire for autonomy. And as in all wars, in this one, people suffered who took no part in the quarrel. Shrapnel went everywhere. Abram's nephew Lot was not personally implicated in the dispute. We might call him an innocent bystander, as far as war goes. And yet he and his family had to endure the difficult trials of war. There were four eastern kings who formed a powerful political coalition. Amraphel from Shinar, Arioch from Elisar, Chedorlaomer from Elam, and Tidal from Goim. And the first named Amraphel of Shinar gives the coalition a Canaanite flavor. In Shinar, you might remember, Nimrod built his kingdom, and that's where the Tower of Babel arose. Amraphel was of Chaldea, where the Babylonians would flourish. But though he gave the coalition its culture, it was Chedorlaomer that gave the coalition its strength. He was the Elamite overlord who reigned over all the other kingdoms. This king was part of a dynasty that ruled all of Syria and Palestine. And the point is that these four kingdoms covered a vast area in the Middle East that extended across Asia, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Babylon, and Persia. The strength and the ferocity of this coalition was illustrated by its many victories. 
They conquered the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Amim, the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites. It's an incredible military resume. An almost invincible powerhouse, these four kings. But then he mentions the five Western kings who also formed a powerful political coalition. Bera of Sodom, Bersha, Gomorrah, Shinab of Adma, Shamiber of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And for 12 years, these five kings served as vassal kings to Chedorlaomer. And as long as they honored him with tribute, he provided them with protection. And this arrangement was what we call a suzerain-vassal treaty. Chedorlaomer was the suzerain king. These five were the vassal kings. It was a covenant relationship, and the suzerain demanded loyalty, and if the vassal rebelled, he would be severely punished. So the five vassal kings rebelled. And so the suzerain and his allies waged a campaign against them. And it was in the valley of Sidim they arrayed for battle four kings against five. And Chedorlaomer was outnumbered, and yet he was not even challenged. He routed them. As a show of strength, this eastern coalition pillaged Sodom and Gomorrah. He would teach them a lesson. Nobody would raise up against him again. And of course, Lot, who was a resident of Sodom, he and his household and all of his possessions were captured. You may remember that Abram and Lot separated because of the strife between their herdsmen. There wasn't enough room. So Lot chose the Jordan Valley because it was fertile and luxuriant. He chose it because of what he saw. It was beautiful. He settled because of business and education and recreation, his own profit and pleasure. His worldly interests were a higher priority, apparently, in his choice than his spiritual concerns. And though he was greatly enriched materially, what happened because of that choice is that he lost everything that was worth having. He lost his wife. He would lose his sons-in-law. He would lose his servants, and perhaps most tragically, he would lose his testimony. He would leave no positive impact upon the culture around him. And though his daughters escaped from Sodom, they carried Sodom in their hearts. Last we hear of Lot, he's living in a mountain cave with grandsons that were gained by incest. And I want you to see how Lot serves as the antithesis of the blessed man laid out in Psalm chapter 1. You remember that psalm. He walks in the counsel of the wicked. He stands in the way of sinners. He sits in the seat of scoffers. That's the wicked. Well, here was Lot living in Sodom where he heard the counsel of the wicked and he stood in the streets of sinners and he sat at the gates of the scoffers. And I think it implies that while Lot's faith may have been sincere, charity demands that we say that, it was weak and easily compromised. In fact, he was in a bit of a backslidden condition, if you asked me, because he started out with the wrong priorities. How do you choose where you live, where you go to church, what job you take, who you marry? Having pitched his tent in Sodom, he now shares the Sodomites' fate And he's in the clutches of a cruel and powerful military confederation. And who could stand against them? It seemed that Lot was lost for good. 
Well, a fugitive from the fierce battle came and told Abram the Hebrew, and this is the first time that the ethnic designation Hebrew is mentioned in the Bible. It's from his ancestor Eber, Hebrews. And Moses uses it to show the genealogical link that Abram had with Eber, who was descended from Shem, according to the promise following the flood. Shem's descendants were the bearers of God's name, and the Canaanites were to be his servants. So Abram is identified as a Hebrew to stress the hereditary and covenant claims that he can make. As a descendant of Eber, he would fulfill the covenant promise to Shem, and he would subdue the Canaanites who were associated with Shinar. His mind is thinking it's at work on the covenant promise. And hearing of Lot's capture, what does Abram do? He takes this mobile military unit of 318 men. That's a large number of servants, if you ask me. And it tells me that Abraham, or Abram, was a very wealthy man. These were trained men, born in his own house, catechized in the true faith. Men of God. And Abram was a faithful master, as God's own testimony confirms in Genesis 18. I've chosen him, God says, that he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. You better believe these 318 men knew who the Lord God was. They were raised under Abram's authority. They were trained under his discipline. They were courageous and trustworthy members of his own family. And Abram also was accompanied by his allies from Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre. And this was a small fighting force. I get it. It was a small fighting force against four kings who had defeated five. And considering all the disadvantages that we see here, it shows that Abram was a courageous man of faith. This Eastern coalition was not a vanquished militia. It was a victorious army. Who in their right mind is going to go against them? But the Bible says the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And Abram illustrates the sincere faith that develops true courage in serving the true and living God. He strategically maneuvered his men at night, and he ended up trusting in the Lord, routing the opposition. It says he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, then brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. He rescued them all. And Yahweh, with them, he gave the victory. There can be no other explanation, but God was with them. And that's the only explanation we are to draw. With this small band of well-trained, disciplined, godly men, he routed this seemingly invincible fighting force. It'd be like Croatia going against the United States, and Croatia wins. The imperial power of the East was overthrown by this ragtag band of servants, and it clearly illustrates, I think, how we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Isn't that one truth? One is a majority when the maker of heaven and earth is with him or her. A small group under God's blessing with the Spirit's help can conquer kingdoms. Look what the fishermen in the first century did. (laughs) They conquered Rome. Abram was weak, but we see how God's power is perfected in weakness. And when the Lord moves, nobody can stop him, not even Chudder Laomer. 
The small group of apostles in the first century under God's blessing changed the world. The handful of 16th century reformers transformed the next 500 years. We still celebrate their achievements. Five students praying under a haystack in the East was a seminal event for modern missions. And Christ Presbyterian might be small in Kent, Ohio at this point, but with God, it's going to be a powerful, steady, sobering church. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Well, upon returning, Abram was met by the king of Sodom. He survived the tar pits, apparently, and throughout Genesis, Sodom is pictured as the embodiment of wickedness. It was wealthy, materially, materially prosperous, but desperately corrupt. And the king of Sodom's name was Bera, a compound with the Hebrew meaning evil. Gomorrah's king was Bersha, a compound name with the Hebrew meaning of wicked. I don't think that's a coincidence. These were evil cities and wicked, wicked people, and here is where Lot pitched his tent. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He brings nothing to Abram. He rudely demands his people. There was no courtesy. In the ancient world, it was understood that the victor had rights to keep whatever spoils he wanted. Abram had a legal claim on all the goods and people. He could keep them for himself if he wanted. But the thing is, he kept not a thing because he didn't want to allow God's glory to be at all diminished. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He said that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. You see, Abram had not waged war as a hired mercenary for the king of Sodom. He believed in the promise and he had fought for the glory and the honor of the Lord himself. And the devil's strategy, as we see here exemplified, is always to usurp glory from the true and living God. And we must not let him do it. But then Abram is also met by the king of Salem, Jerusalem, whose name is Melchizedek. The first and only time that this man appears in any narrative of scripture. And yet he is afforded one of the highest places in redemptive history as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, Melchizedek. He appears sparingly so that he can serve as a signpost to Christ's priesthood. Because you see, in a literary way, he prefigured the eternality of Christ's person. Melchizedek was a man like other men. He was born and he died. But the Bible makes no mention of his origin or his eventual demise. It's as if, according to John Calvin, he had just dropped from the clouds. And so literarily, it's as if Melchizedek always was and always would be. Hebrews 7 says he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, and he continues a priest forever, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this royal priest brought bread and wine to refresh the weary soldiers, but it was more than a feast. This was a covenant meal of friendship. 
And as the representative of the Most High, he confirmed God's promises. The meal was simply a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper that was instituted by Christ. And Melchizedek's meal refreshed the soldiers and sealed the covenant promises, an oath that confirmed what God had said. And this is the way of God. He reveals, he explains, and he confirms. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him because he knows our frame. And our God remembers that we're but dust. And Melchizedek's priestly mediation helps explain the mediation of Christ because a priest is one who mediates between the God of heaven and the worshiper on earth. That's what a priest does. On the one hand, Melchizedek blessed Abram on God's behalf. Blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth. A true blessing. And on the other hand, Melchizedek blessed God on behalf of Abram. He said, blessed be God most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. So his twofold benediction sums up the entire priestly function. It's through the priest that God's blessing comes down upon man. And it's through the priest that blessing, honor, and glory redound to God. And the priestly benediction is authoritative and efficacious because God honors it. When one of us stands up here at the end and raises our hands and blesses the congregation, that's God's blessing. And insofar as we believe it, we receive it. What a blessed exchange we find here. Man receives salvation and God gets the glory. Abram shares in God's claim as possessor of heaven and earth. And Abram's glory as victor over the enemies becomes truly the Lord's. Because who in their right mind would ever say the 318 men, and no matter how trained they are, could conquer a force like that? And so Abram responds to the priestly ministry by giving a tenth of everything. He gives the first fruits as a representation of the whole. He dedicates the whole thing to the Lord. And it's a tithe proving his gratitude and his pledge of faith. And in that way, he exemplifies the faith and the gratitude of the true church. Christ is king of righteousness and peace, the eternal high priest. He blesses all believers with the riches of his benediction. Remember what happened in Luke 24. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And that blessing cascades down the corridors of history onto every generation in the church. Abram is the father of all who believe, and he receives the blessing, he gives the glory, and we are a royal priesthood to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. This marvelous piece of sacred history teaches us something about the mystical relationship, doesn't it? God takes the initiative. He calls his people. He gives us the victory. He bestows his blessing. And what do we do? We respond in faith. We share in the triumph and we give the glory to God. It's all of grace. Pure grace. And we are richly blessed because of his grace. And though Abram would lapse, he would sin. Yahweh would remain faithful. And so I think, in conclusion, Abram's victory was a prophetic drama of our Savior's triumph over the devil. 
Abram went forth in God's name and he returned in triumph for God's glory. And for a season, the Sodomites benefited. It was a temporary respite. They eventually perished. But in the same way, Christ came to bruise the serpent's head and to destroy the works of the devil. And he delivered his people and has granted a season of respite to the world. That's the only reason the world still exists. If sinners remain unbelieving and impenitent, Paul says it's because of their hard and impenitent hearts. And they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But all those who belong to our champion, all of those who belong to Jesus Christ can be of good cheer because we have been delivered. He shed his blood to satisfy divine justice and he died on that cross to conquer our enemies who seemed invincible. And we're told, according to the Apostle John, that his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I think Melchizedek's ministry portrays the fullness of Christ's ministry of love to you and me. In him and through him, we receive the blessing of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Membership in the new covenant is rich, it's glorious, it's an unmatched privilege. We're translated out of a wretched state into the eternal peace and righteousness of Christ himself. And as I read Revelation 5, it teaches me that we will join the four living creatures and the 24 elders in singing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And get this, they shall reign on the earth. Thanks be to God for the inexpressible gift of King Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Old Testament living parable, as it were, teaching us of your power and ultimately of the victorious champion of the woman's seed, even Jesus himself. We thank you that he has conquered and that we share in his victory and that you get the glory. Please help us to sing your praise. For tonight we do so with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.